All right, well, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Daniel. I am the lead pastor here at Emmanuel Church. It is a joy to be here this Easter morning. Well, to begin with, uh, I want to shout out to any other J.R.R. Tolkien nerds out there. Can you raise your hand? There you go. There you go. Don't be ashamed. That's me, right? I am a Middle-earth junkie. I love reading the books and, of course, the movies as well. But in those stories, right, if you have any familiarity with the Middle-earth stories, there's two places Tolkien was kind of holding up side by side. One place was called the Shire, and the other place was Mordor, right? So Shire, he, you know, Tolkien paints this picture of the Shire. It's this place where full of rolling green hills, a cheery, happy people who aren't in a rush to get anywhere, a place full of delicious orchards and flowing drink and families that run generations and generations deep living in the same place, this place of peace, joy, laughter, simplicity. And of course you have Mordor, right? This dark place where evil continually just kind of smokes out of the place that is, you know, in danger of taking over the entirety of Middle Earth, full of pain and full of oppression. Peter Jackson, who made the classic movies, he had this to say as he was, you know, himself just indulged in these stories making the movies. He said, you kind of get this impression, which can be a little depressing, that Tolkien's themes really resonate today and that they're probably going to resonate in 50 years or 100 years because I don't think humans are capable of actually pulling themselves out of these basic ruts. I think there's some truth to that. If we're capable in of our own strength, don't you think we would have figured this out by now? Don't you think we'd have built some nation or some empire or some country that has no more problems? That we said, we got this figured out. It took just a couple millennia, but we got it figured out. No more problems. We haven't done that. Even think in your own life. You probably have seasons in your own life where everything just seemed right. You know, some vacation with your family, maybe that, that week or that day with, with friends or, or family where all you can remember is just happiness and, and peace and love, kind of like that idyllic shire, right? When I was a kid in Georgia, we would visit Florida every year, and I remember, you know, going to the same condominium every year, and it was just before my grandmother passed, you know, it was just these weeks of just peace, right, that I always think of and always remember. Everything just seemed right. But also, just like all of us, we have those difficult and dark moments, those dark memories where we know things are broken and we're also forced to face the brokenness. A miscarriage, a diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, the dark places like Tolkien's Mordor. But sometimes in that dark place, if you will, um, are things that we've brought unto ourselves that didn't just happen to us, but things that we have even caused ourselves through our own lack of wisdom, through our own lack of good decision-making, or perhaps even our own corruption 
It's in here, if we're honest, that is in all of us. And I think that's why Peter Jackson hit on something important, that we can't seem to pull ourselves out of these ruts. I mean, go to the library, pull out any history book of any ancient civilization, think about our current modern times and all the issues and problems that we face today. Any civilization in history have faced the same old things. Some civilization rose up, and then through eternal decay, corruption, and rot, it falls apart. For the next one to come up, and through eternal decay and rot, it once falls apart. All of that resonates us, if we're honest, because um, I think all of us have this intuition inside that is searching for paradise. We're on the hunt for that one place that flourishes and doesn't fall apart, that does not contain the rot and decay that we see everywhere in our world. We all desire that. I don't know if you've ever thought about why that's there, but it's in all of us, right? This is why we love our movies when we see, you know, Luke Skywalker take out Darth Vader finally, or we see, you know, Thanos finally killed by the Avengers. We want to see Frodo finally destroying, and I'm a super nerd, right? I don't care. It's great. We want to see Frodo destroy the Ring of Power, right? And it's the same movie, the same plot over and over again. Let's be honest. Those are all the same movies. Same story. But it just draws us in because we see wickedness and we're like, we know that's, that's legit. Like, that's real. That's here. And then we see good. And we see the good overcome the evil. And we're like, can that, can that happen one day? Like, could that actually happen in our reality? Could it be? And it fills our imagination and it continues to draw us in. Well, this morning we're about to look at a man some thousand, two thousand years, about two thousand years ago, this ancient story of a human being doing the unimaginable, not one that survived, just survived death or, you know, pulled himself up against all odds and did the unthinkable, but no, this story that we're going to visit this morning is an unnatural story. Maybe we can call it supernatural. The story of a human being that was publicly murdered by professional Roman executors, by what was at the time the, one of the world's strongest empires. We're going to revisit his story when he was buried. Buried by people whose names we still have today. Buried for three days. And here we're gathered because there's testimony from a group of women and men who said we saw him alive again. He was with us. He ate with us. He drank with us. He's alive again. Someone proved to have the power over death. And that stirs in us a hope. A daring hope. An unthinkable hope even. That something so powerful as death and something so dark as death was actually overcome by life. So if that man did defeat death, perhaps this means that our longing for paradise or longing for that place of perfection, maybe it's not misplaced after all. Because in the Bible it begins, our human origin story, in which we really did live in paradise. We were actually created and designed by God for such a place. A place where no death, no suffering, no violence no oppression, no extortion, only peace and harmony and a loving, a loving existence 
with the eternal God. But when we tried as creatures, created creatures, to live on our own, separate from God, as if we could replace God's role as God and become little G-gods ourselves, the main decision that we try to make for ourselves is to define what is good and what is evil according to our own definition. The very thing that always destroys any empire, any nation, any person, when we try to take that absolute freedom as if it belongs to us and that we can manage it without guide or direction, that we can manage it because we are little gods. That was the first sin of Adam and Eve. They thought they could have that power, but that power did nothing but corrupt them and brought sin into this world. That is when the hearts of all of humankind became hopelessly corrupt because such knowledge and such power was never meant to belong to us. And faith, we needed to leave that to God, but we tried to take his role as ours. Adam and Eve then, they were torn apart in their relationship. They were overcome with shame and they lost access to the very tree of life. They were cast into exile in the world now full of thorns, barren ground, plain suffering, and ultimately bound to die. But we're still looking for that lost paradise. Right? So humankind, we took this new power, deciding what is good and evil for ourselves, and it began curving in on us. The very first chapter after they were kicked out of the garden, Cain and Abel, the first murder. We instantly began murdering each other, oppressing each other. The world became filled with wars and plagues and sickness full of oppression, full of the abuse of power. As these civilizations rose and fell, each one became so corrupt that they just continued to collapse in on themselves. But what the Bible calls in the fullness of time, about 2,000 years ago, God once again walked this earth, just like he did in Eden. But this time, he was in flesh and bones, just like you and I. And of course, his name was Jesus he was a brown-skinned, ancient Near Eastern, or today what we call Middle Eastern, Aramaic-speaking man with Jewish blood running through his veins. For 30 years, he lived a very normal life, poor in poverty, just like most everybody else of his day. He swung a hammer as a carpenter, just like his adopted father, Joseph, did. But then one day, when he turned about 30 years old, he began publicly preaching. Mark 1, verse 15, he began preaching, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and that word means turn. It means you're facing this way, but now you're gonna face this way. Turn, face this new direction, repent and believe the good news. Good news, that's the word for gospel. And then he began calling people to follow him. And as he did so, he began working miracles. People were healed. Evil spirits cast out of people. His teaching was with incredible authority. Those who followed him, there were some pretty interesting people. Some were very ordinary people like fishermen. One of his disciples was a political and militaristic zealot who hated the government. And Jesus paired him up with a government worker who extorted money from the poor. You can imagine how those two disciples got along. He also gathered the following from the poor, the lame, beggars, people whom he healed. 
Many others who were simply interested in what he would say or do next. In reality, it's many of those on the outcast of his society that he gathered to himself. The unlikely ones. The ones that knew their need. The ones that understood the darkness of the place they lived in and the worst of what life had brought to them and they were looking for hope. And Jesus called them and he gave them hope. And the day of the Messiah, as the prophet Isaiah said some 700 years before, he said that when the Messiah comes, that the thorny cursed ground would see strong cypress trees grow. Myrtle trees would flower amongst the thorns. The ground itself, he said, would be renewed along with the people that walked on it. This world would begin to be filled with joy and peace. Even creation itself, the trees were said to be, would, would clap their hands. The mountains would sing for joy. As not only itself experiences transformation one day, but the people in it would. So many wondered, was this, was this kingdom that this man is talking about, could that be that? That age that these prophets talked about that was to come? that kind of reminds us of what Eden was or what was lost. Could it be coming? Is he going to bring it? So he kept healing the sick. He kept serving the poor. And with his authority, he only loved. He never oppressed. He never took advantage among the least among them. He seemed to be showing, thus, a different way to live, a different way to think about what it means to be human, one that is not like the darkness that we're so familiar with, that our hearts are so familiar with, but a life of wholeness, of completeness, of life of salvation, and a life of joy. This past Friday night, we gathered many of us in this room as we observed Good Friday, the day that he was murdered by the Roman authorities, receiving the death penalty reserved for the poorest and the lowliest in society, the brutal death of crucifixion. The accusations given to Jesus was that he was challenging the authority of Caesar, calling himself king. And the Romans, they would never have somebody challenge the authority of Caesar and potentially start some kind of, you know, rebellion. But they all misunderstood Jesus. He wasn't coming to begin a political revolution. He wasn't coming to begin a new kingdom to overthrow the Romans. But as he was on trial... As he stood there, a bloodied mess from the beating he took, about to be taken to the cross, Pilate, the one who accused him to death, he brought him in a side room. And he said, are you, are you the king of the Jews? Is this true? Are you really a king? This is what Jesus told him in John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered from the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. But wait, at the beginning of his preaching, read all the gospels, he says the kingdom is here. It's it's here. But now he's saying, yeah, but it's, it's not a kingdom of this world. So how do we understand that? How can a kingdom where Jesus is king and his followers be not of this world? Like, what is he referring to? Well, there's a famous prayer. I'm sure most of us know as Americans, at least some words of it. If you're in church, you're not often in church. Uh, If you have a Catholic background, it's called the Our Father. If you're Protestant, it's the Lord's Prayer. In it, Jesus famously asked us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, what Jesus was doing, I want you to, if you're falling asleep, just wake up. Here we go. You ready? We all here? We good? We good? All right. When Jesus was here, he was showing us in his lifetime glimpses of heaven, of paradise, of the place that he really originally wanted this world to be that we rebelled against. He was bringing it back, bringing glimpses of it back in what he called his kingdom. And he said, it is coming and it is already in this world, but not in full. But essentially every time that he was seen loving someone, healing someone, every time he was casting evil spirits out of people or reversing people's um, sicknesses and their leprosy and all these things that were just, you know, just brought all these people, he was reversing the brokenness that was found in this world, all the darkness. And he would say, when I did this, the kingdom has been seen among you. The brokenness is being reversed. That's the kingdom of God. This kingdom like Eden, one of the special marks of it was the very presence of God. But unlike Adam and Eve who were removed from God's presence, Jesus, the man who was God, he brought the presence of God among us. He went after us. He came into this world and brought the very God, the presence of God walking and breathing and talking here among us again. But this man died, his flame was extinguished, bringing all hopes seemingly to a close of people thinking maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he really is, maybe he's going to restore all things. Maybe he will reverse all this brokenness, but now he is dead. Was he a trickster, right? Was he just another charlatan that goes out and gathers a crowd and tricks them and then dies and nothing becomes of it? And sadly, his disciples were confused on that Saturday. But this is what happened on the third day, on this morning, some 2,000 years ago. But on the first day of the week, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb of Jesus, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Do you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise? They remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and all the other women who were with them who told these things to the apostles. Jesus, out of his love, who gathered the male disciples around him, he first showed himself to his women disciples. But these words seemed to them an idle tale as the women told the other disciples what they saw. These words seemed to them an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. So the tomb was empty. 
Jesus had told them he would rise again, but they never quite understood what he was talking about. But now is there an empty tomb? What did this mean? What does his resurrection mean? It may be more familiar to say, okay, we know Jesus died for our sins on the cross. I grew up in church. When I heard somebody tell me about Jesus and tell me about Christianity, it was often Jesus died on the cross for your sins, so when you believe in him, you can receive eternal life. There's something missing from that statement, though. I remember being a young man in college um, on the Easter morning. Somebody said, you know why Jesus rose from the dead? I didn't have an answer. I knew why he died for me. Why did he rise from the dead? What is that about? Well, the first thing it shows us is that everything he said was true. That he actually was the son of God. That he actually was the divine 100% man who was also 100% God. He was indeed the author of life who had power over death. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 states this from the Apostle Paul. The resurrection is so important that if it's not true, we are wasting our time. This whole faith, this whole church, Christianity for 2,000 years, it's all just a complete, it's all vanity if this story isn't true. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And even those who have died in Christ, fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most people in this earth to be pitied. So in other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he is indeed a charlatan, a, a charlatan, a crazy man who was probably out of his mind for the claims that he made. This whole thing called Christianity is a waste of time. But... As he did rise from the dead, as the events, we just read names of witnesses, the highly unlikely story of the Romans who killed thousands and thousands of people by crucifixion. They had this thing down pat for somebody to say, hey, I want to make up a story. Let's make it up about one of those people coming back from the dead. Oh yeah, they'll totally believe that. No, they won't. This story makes no sense. If you want to make up a story, there's a million ways to make up a story that would have made sense to a pagan people. That story made no sense. The pagans, they looked down on those who were crucified. They were the worst of society. To come up and say, one of those people you killed was, was God, and you should worship him. You know what the early representations of Jesus in artwork, you know what it is? They found it in a cave in the region of Italy, and it's one of mockery of a man hanging on the cross with the head of a donkey just mocking the Christians. You worship one of those people that was crucified? You must be out of your mind. The story makes no sense only if, it, it makes sense only if it is true. But secondly, there's another really important reason why Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, it, it secures for us eternal life, that when we die, 
the place he was he ascended back into heaven that we will be with him forever and ever but there's a lot of other things the bible says about resurrection i'm going to talk about on our back end of our sermon today because there is a power that raised him from the dead the bible says there was a power that raised him from the dead that power was the very spirit of god on the very first page of our Bibles, God's spirit was hovering over the empty void before God fashioned the beauty and creation from that void. It was the same power through whom all things were created that brought Jesus back from the dead. And what we discovered was that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he says, I got to go back to the Father because there's about to be a power given to this world, unleashed to this world for all who believe in me. So he's always a disciple, stick around, it's coming, but I'm going back to my father. And when the Holy Spirit was given to the early Christians, they realized that the resurrection Jesus experienced, his physical resurrection, which one day the Bible says all in Christ will be raised when he returns to this earth and renews all things. But even now, you can experience your own resurrection as you meet him by the renewal that comes from meeting Jesus Christ, by the transformation that comes from meeting Jesus Christ. The Bible refers to that as today you can be raised with him. Romans chapter six, listen to these words. Romans chapter six from the apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Good Friday. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. Now that is also future newness, but the way Paul says that in the original language is called the, the imperfect. That means it's always happening now and tomorrow and the day after, the year after this newness can always be experienced in our life. We can walk today in newness of life. So let's push pause there. By believing in Jesus who died for your sins, Paul says you also experienced a death. If you want to follow Jesus, it means that his death on the cross was also your death to your old self. That there's an old self who was just searching for paradise, looking for hope, knowing the darkness of this world and just thinking, surely there is, there is, there is hope and there's salvation somewhere. And Paul says, yes, but that person is, is, is gone. It died with Christ as he died. We were buried with him when we have faith in him. But just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, which means that your life today can be renewed. Now I want to say that one more time. Your life can be renewed. I don't care if you've been following Jesus for the entirety of your life, or if you're here as a skeptic, because somebody drug you here, and you're like, I don't really want to be here. But listen to me. All the view in this room, your life can be renewed in Jesus Christ. That hope and longing in your heart can be met when you meet Jesus and he gives you his spirit. He says, my new life, I want to give to you even now. You can be renewed. He, can, he continues on in the book of Romans. He says, for if we have been united with him in the death like this, listen to this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives unto God. So listen to this verse, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are you here this morning? And you're thinking, I, I really could use a restart. I need a do-over. Anybody ever needed a do-over in their life? Maybe for the first time you need a do-over, or for the, like me, 50th thousand and first time, millionth, whatever, you need a do-over. Are you aware of your need for newness of life? That so many things perhaps in your life right now just aren't simply cutting it. And you know they aren't. But you're still clinging to them because you don't know what else to cling to. Just hoping maybe next time this will deliver what I'm looking for. Maybe next time that, that paradise that I'm hungry for, maybe it'll just pop up in this one thing that I've gone to so many times. It just reaps destruction in my life. For all of us in this room, we need to know that Jesus wants to renew us today. He wants us to start a new chapter in our life. At our church, we've been talking about the topic of spiritual renewal for, for weeks now and what it means to truly be living a life of renewal, which means that when we start following Jesus, that we don't just get, you know, uh, hell insurance, it's not just a guarantee. He says, well, now if I die tomorrow, a bus hits me, I get to go to heaven. Whew, that's over. No. He wants all of you. He wants every single little nook and corner and cranny, and he wants to transform you. That's what the resurrection also means. That eternal life that the Gospel of John talks about, it's more often used in the present tense. Like now, eternal life now. He wants to give that to you now so you can experience the life of heaven and the joys of heaven even here on this earth. There's nothing greater than realizing this, than Christ Jesus on this Easter morning, that because of his death for our sins and his resurrection, that we can experience a glimpse of paradise now. We can experience what it means to know God to experience his presence among us, to spend our days learning to cultivate the joy of knowing God, that those eternal voids in our heart can continually be filled with him. That's a glimpse of paradise, the time when he walked amongst us, what our future will be when we die in him. He wants you to glimpse that even now. The message of Easter is that in the midst of this dark world, because of his resurrection, there are now groups of people called Christians who aren't perfect, we know this. Continually, the church is exposed for all sorts of evil and awful things because we're all continual works in progress. But he has called us as Christians 
who are being renewed by his spirit into newness of life. Lives marked by love and peace and kindness and forgiveness and power and self-control. And we as a church are then called to be a glimpse of those things, a glimpse of who Jesus was, a glimpse of the power that he had of this kingdom of God. We are called to be a glimpse of that wherever we are found. In our case, in the city of Wilmington. So more people can not just meet Jesus and have a relationship with him, but experience his salvation, experience his transformation, be filled with his presence and say, yes, I also have been raised with Christ. While we all still experience suffering, pain, difficulty, trials of many kinds, those things will not be taken away from us until he returns. We're all still going to be aware that this world is a dark place. I mean, just last night in our own shopping mall, there was a shooting. Teenagers, right? It just broke my heart this morning as my son's 12, just a few years older than him, thinking, Lord, like, bring renewal here, Lord. Jesus, bring a, it's just a time when there's, we don't have to hear stories like that in our place. Lord, come, Jesus. That's the darkness that is here. But we have faith that God is still working. We have faith that he is still pursuing us. There's still a hope for continued transformation. Romans chapter 8 says this, that even in the midst of the darkness, even as, as we are called to him, he says God is still working all of these things for good. That's what the resurrection guarantees. In faith we say, okay, I don't know how this is working out for good, but your word says it is. And in faith, I'm just trusting, Lord, that you are somehow working out good. The scripture says that he chose us to become more and more like him, that we are made right before God and brought into his family, and that we will also be raised from the grave on the day he returns, just like Christ was. As we close our time today, I'm about to see, see a baptism here in a moment. And visually see this. I'm about to visually see somebody buried with Christ, right? Symbolized with baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. But the, one of the most crucial chapters of Scripture shows us the hope that we have today because of the resurrection. And it's Romans chapter 8. As Paul talks about all these things we've been talking about all morning, he kind of climaxes in the middle of this. His argument kind of reaches its pinnacle in the middle of this book called The Letter to the Romans. And this is what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who makes right. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who right now is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I want you to hear these next words for all of us in this room, for the skeptics and for those who walk with Christ for longer than I've been alive. This is a hope that we're about to read about, that the resurrection has sealed for us in faith. You can receive this today. If you're in Christ, you can receive it again today. This assurance that says this in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall the worst sin that you committed so many years ago that still lingers on your mind is just the weight, the burden that you can't shake off? I can't tell you how many times people came to me and would say things like, you know, I'm interested in Christianity, but like I keep hearing about sins that can't be forgiven or something because like, I don't know, you should hear my story. In Christ, he died once and for all, for all sin, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is coming from a man who was in, in prison often, whose life was often on the line, who lost his own head, beheaded because of his love for Jesus, who just risked everything to spread the hope of the gospel. He says, I know that even right now as I feel just so alone and just almost cut off from this world that I know I'm not separate separated from the love of God. That's what he's saying here. He says in verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is what paradise now is all about. God wants you and he is with you.
in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name.